Lord, what a privilege it is just to be together in your presence this morning, to be able to sing your praises, join with all creation, all of heaven, to declare that you are great, Lord. You are mighty. Oh, Lord, you are sovereign over all things. And so we come to you, the giver of life. We pray and speak to us. In fact, I know, Lord, you want to speak this morning. May we have open hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to add my welcome to you. So great to have you sharing with us today, those online as well. And it is really exciting to be sharing with you as we launch into our church-wide series in the book of James. And up front this morning, I want to give a brief introduction to the book, and then we're going to jump in and we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 1. And the title of this series is Faith in Action, as Andrew mentioned just before. And the reason for this is that it captures one of the main themes of the book of James. James puts it like this in James 2 verse 17. He says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And for many of us, we can so easily feel stuck in the journey of faith. We can sense a spiritual deadness or a powerlessness there. And James reveals to us how so often... This is the case because we have never grasped the power of faith in action, this critical step of faith moving us to action. Recently, I was talking to someone about baptism, and they said to me, I'm so glad you raised this with me because God has been putting it on my heart a lot recently, and I really know I need to do this, and I'm keen to do it. And I said, well, that's fantastic. What an affirmation from God that we're chatting about it. And I said, well, why don't we book in a date for your baptism? And I put a date forward. How about this possible date? Well, as soon as I mentioned the the date, the conversation changed and suddenly a person said to me, wow, that makes it very real, booking in a date. And suddenly there was hesitation. They were like, oh, now I'm not sure about it. And, And I totally understand this response because there's something significant about when faith moves to action. It was a faith in action moment right there. And suddenly there's this hesitation. And I do the same thing because putting our faith into action is not always easy. We all know that it's one thing to speak about our faith in God and to affirm that in our heart, in our mind, which is important and significant, but it's another thing to begin that journey of putting our faith into action. And that person, by the way, did book in a date for their baptism. They're getting baptised in a few weeks' time, and they are so excited about putting their faith into action. You're going to be blessed uh, through their story as well, I know. The second part of the introduction to James is who wrote this book, because this is incredibly significant as well as we go through these chapters together. The book begins, James 1 verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question we need to ask is, which James is this? Because there are a few significant people called James in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Most prominent is James the apostle. He was one of the sons of Zebedee, the brother of John, and is very prominent, very active in in the gospel accounts. So you might just assume, well, this must be James who wrote this letter, James the apostle. But the James writing here is not James the apostle, but James, the brother of Jesus, who had become a great leader of the church in Jerusalem. So this is James, the son of Joseph and Mary. He was the younger brother, of course, because Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph before they were married. Mary, pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But James was raised with Jesus, probably shared a room with Jesus, probably played sport in the backyard with Jesus, probably got Jesus' hand-me-down clothes. This is the James we're talking about. 
And I know this is the case because I have a little brother as well. Um, and uh, I'm definitely not Jesus, um, and he can assure you of that, but my little brother is Pastor Jono, who's just up there, with the, up here with the dedication, and my little brother grew a lot bigger than me. Um, thankfully, he grew bigger than me after our time of wrestling days were mostly behind us. By the time he got bigger than me, that was a blessing, uh, because you don't always treat your little brother as you should when you're growing up, uh, and your little brother sees all your faults, all your flaws, they know you very well. And so think about this for a moment. Here is Jesus' younger brother who says at the start of the book, I have seen this man up close. I have seen him up close and I want to tell you that he is the Lord. That is a powerful testimony, isn't it? It's huge, in fact. And of all the testimonies, this has to be one of the most weighty for us to consider because we know that James did not always think like this about his older brother Jesus. In the book of John, we read that it says Jesus' brothers, brothers did not believe in him, that they made fun of him, that they scorned him. And that's not too hard to believe. If your brother who you grew up with, shared a room with, you know, played sport in the backyard with, is now going around saying he is God, you might have trouble believing that as well. But here is where it all changes for James. We're told where it all shifts for him. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7, it tells us that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he appeared to a number of people. Mostly, uh, it was in groups. He appeared to groups of people. But there is only one person, from what we can tell, that he had a special appearance for. 1 Corinthians 15 7 says he appeared all by himself to his brother James. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall for that encounter when Jesus appeared to his little brother James? That would have been an interesting moment. But in that moment, James was convinced that Jesus, his older brother, was Lord, was the Lord, that he truly was the saviour of the world, his risen saviour. And in that moment, everything changed for James and he would go on to become one of the greatest leaders of the early church and have a huge influence. And I don't know about you, but if, if I think if, if it comes to the point where a little brother is convinced that his older brother is genuinely the son of God, then I think that is worthy of taking some consideration of, of, of evaluating the evidence ourselves as well. A powerful testimony. Eventually, the enemies of the gospel take James in AD 62 and they take him to the pinnacle of the temple and they say to him, there are too many people becoming Christians. We want you to declare from up here on the top of the temple that people are no longer to turn to Christ. Now, I don't know what they thought James was going to do in this situation. Given all he had witnessed, all he had been through over his whole life, what he had encountered, but they were way off the mark. They thought he was now going to start telling people to stop turning to Jesus. And we're told instead that James, according to history, James looked out and called down and said these words. He said, why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He dwells in heaven at the right hand of the mighty power. He will come with the clouds of heaven. In anger, they threw James off the the pinnacle of the temple. He fell to the ground, but he wasn't dead yet when he um, came to the ground, but beaten and broken, he crawled to his knees. He began to pray for forgiveness for his enemies. And at that point, they came down and they stoned him and beat him over the head until he was dead. 
And, and this is a powerful testimony as we read these, these words in James. And it actually leads us to the first topic that James picks up in this letter. And it's the issue of how, as believers, we are to face trials and suffering in this life. And James was familiar with this. He knew what he was talking about. So let me read this section we're going to look at today. Um, James chapter 1, through to verse 12. It says this, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation." Since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is God's word to us this morning. I read recently about the story of a young New Yorker named Glenn Chambers, and he had a lifelong dream to work for God in Ecuador, and at the airport on the day of his departure, he wanted to send a note to his mother, and he didn't have time to buy a card, and so he found a slip of paper on the ground on the airport floor, so he picked it up, and it was like an advertising slip, and it just had the big words, why, written across it with a big question mark, and so he just used this bit of paper and wrote around the edge of the Y a little message to send to his mum before he left. Well, that night, his plane crashed into one of the high Colombian mountain peaks before he even ever arrived in Ecuador, and he, and he died. And when his mother received the note after news of his death, the question literally burned at her from the page, from the piece of paper, why, why, why would a good God allow suffering like this. And the issue of suffering continues to be the most frequently raised objection to the Christian faith. How could a, God, a good God, who is all-powerful, allow so much pain and suffering in this world? And James explains here in verse 2 that he is talking about trials of, of many kinds, is the words he used. And we see suffering on a global scale, don't we? We see natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, floods and wars we see it on a global scale, but we also see it on, on a community level as well, where there are community tragedies, disasters, accidents that take place that impact a whole community. And we also see suffering on an individual level that affects us all through bereavement, sickness, broken relationships, addiction, loneliness, poverty, homelessness, rejection, disappointment, and more. The list could go on and on. And James says these trials and sufferings, they come in many different kinds to our lives. In fact, he's saying we, we constantly are confronted by suffering in this world. And, and for many, the question of suffering is this massive barrier, this big obstacle for them in their faith journey. John Stott wrote the following. He said, the fact of suffering 
undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was sharing uh, on Sunday night with someone who was on a journey of faith, and they were telling me how several years ago now, they started attending a church, and um, they found it really helpful, and um, were sort of starting out on their journey of faith, exploring faith, and God was really working in their heart. They even started attending a, a, a Bible study group, and were going really well. But then she said, in the middle of this... She said, then suddenly, my father, my dad passed away. He was only young. It was very unexpected circumstances. And she said, that experience for me, she said, I could not come to comprehend. I couldn't understand, she said, how a good and loving father would take my dad away from me like that. And she, she stopped going to church. It just became this massive barrier for her. And only just recently, as she started coming back, to church again, but this continues to be a massive challenge for her in her faith journey. How could a good God allow suffering like this? The first thing we see here in James 1 is that the Bible doesn't ignore the reality of suffering and trials in this life. James doesn't say here, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, if you face trials of many kinds. He says, when you face them. The Bible acknowledges, the Bible says that suffering in this life is inevitable. Jesus said in this life you will have trouble because we live in a broken and a fallen world because these trials are going to come and life is hard. Life is not easy. Some years ago now, back when we were expecting our first child, I attended an antenatal class with my wife. We were sitting in chairs, in rows, in this hospital um, room uh, with about 20 or 30 others at the same time and the midwife is at the front and explaining um, you know everything that we need to know for um, what was ahead of us and then um, at some point in the class she decided to um, pass around some things that she thought would be helpful for us to see up close that would be you know good for us to be aware of before we head into the labour and she began by passing around the epidural needle part, didn't have the syringe on it but the plastic part of this thing And it became passed around. Well, as this needle got closer and closer, I began feeling worse and worse. I began feeling sweaty and clammy, lightheaded. And all I could do is just put my head down in my wife's, in Andrea's lap. That's all I could do. And she said to me, what are you doing? I said, I don't know, but I don't feel good. I'm not feeling good at all. And I don't know what that midwife was thinking. Because there was a lot of guys that couldn't handle that sort of stuff in that room that day. But I had to duck outside. But I realized... I realized, not a great start to my pregnancy support role journey, that's for sure, but I realized that I'm not great when it comes to any sort of physical pain or suffering or medical procedures. So the goal of my life is to avoid pain and suffering wherever possible. I just try to avoid it. But I know that I'm not alone in this because we live in a culture where we go to great lengths to shield ourselves from the experience of suffering and pain and trials. We go to great lengths to do this. But this is a very new phenomenon in history. This is very new. I was reading recently about the fact that there has never been a time or place where people were more squeamish or unhappy about suffering. 
In every other culture, every other society, every other time, people have been very aware of the reality of suffering because they were just confronted with the reality of it daily. They couldn't avoid it, no matter how hard you tried. And they knew that life was short, that life was brutal. They accepted the fact that life is hard. They knew this so well. And because of this, pagan religions were always about doing things for the gods so that the gods would help you to avoid the trials and sufferings of life. That was what pagan religion was all about, but not Christianity. In fact, not at all. We see that here in James when he says something very different to that. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Do you see how different this is to the pagan religions? But we need some explanation here. Let me begin by explaining what James is not saying here. James is not a masochist saying, trials are great, enjoy them, you know, bring on the suffering. Let's seek it out. That is not what he is saying. And on the other hand, he's not a hedonist saying, well, unless life is all good, you can't have joy. He's not saying that either. The key to understanding what James is talking about here is the word consider. He says, consider it pure joy. He's not saying that suffering is pure joy. That is the masochist approach. Right? He's saying consider it pure joy. And what James is saying here is that as believers, we need to gain a new perspective of our trials. Last month, wheelchair tennis champion Dylan Alcott was um, named, awarded the, the great honour of Australian of the Year. Dylan, I think, has now won 23 um, Grand Slam titles, which is phenomenal, an amazing athlete. And Dylan was born with a tumour wrapped around his spinal cord, which was operated in the first few weeks of his life. And the tumour was successfully cut out, but it left Alcott a paraplegic, re- requiring him to use a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And in his Australian of the Year acceptance speech, Dylan said these words, and when I heard them, it just grabbed my attention straight away. This is what he said in his speech. He said, I love my disability. It is the best thing that ever happened to me. It really is. And I am so thankful for the life that I get to live, and I am the luckiest guy in this country easily, he said. And I thought to myself when I heard that, how could he reach a place where he was thankful for his suffering? He literally, in that speech, was saying, a bit like James, he said, I consider it pure joy that I have experienced this trial. Doesn't seem to make sense, does it, when you hear someone say that? And he definitely didn't always feel that way, because earlier in his speech, he said these words. He said, I used to hate having a disability. I hated it so much that I didn't want to be here anymore. So what changed for Dylan? How could he now say that he loved this disability? What changed for him? Well, what changed was that Dylan gained a different perspective on his trials. Over time, he began to see the good things that his trials, as painful as they were, had brought into his life. And interestingly, when you talk to many people who have been through great suffering and trials, they will often say something similar along those lines. They'll often say something like this, I would never choose or wish for anyone to go through what I have been through, yet I would not change the experience because of the way it has shaped me for the better, the way it has deepened my faith 
an understanding of God's love, developed compassion in me towards others, provided opportunities for me to share with others in a way I could never have done if it wasn't for those trials that I went through. It's quite amazing and very impacting to hear people talk like this after all they've been through. But this is not always the case. We don't always respond like this. Sometimes when trials and suffering come our way, it can have the opposite effect in our lives. Rather than it making us more like Christ or a better person, it can make us worse. It can make us angry and and bitter. It can make us more spiteful, more vengeful, more obsessed with yourself, more filled with self-pity, and in some cases drive you to do addictive things to try and to cover over the pain. We blame God and we get angry at him. But James is saying here that as believers, as followers of Jesus, that is not how we are to face trials. He's saying when you face trials and troubles of many kinds, don't allow yourself to become bitter and angry towards others or God, but instead you need to consider, he says, you need to step back and gain a new perspective of those trials. And let me be really clear here that God's heart breaks at the suffering in this fallen world. His heart breaks at the trials that you are enduring and going through in your life. This is not how he intended things to be. And as Jesus stood by his friend, friend Lazarus's tomb, as he stood there, even though he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, what did he do? He wept. He wasn't weeping over Lazarus because he knew Lazarus was going to come back to life, but he was weeping because he was heartbroken at the pain and suffering in this world, and he, and he hates it. And he knows, Jesus knew in that moment, this is not how it was meant to be. He was heartbroken. In no way is James here trying to minimize the significance of the suffering or the trials that you are facing. James is not saying here, your trials aren't really that bad in the big picture. That is not what James is saying here when he says you need to get a new perspective on your trials. That's not what James is talking about. Do not, please do not take that message from this passage. What James is saying is that as deep as the trials are that you are facing, God can use those trials to bring blessing if you will bring them to him, if you will allow him to work that in your life. And James actually lists some of the blessings that that can come through our trials. If you look at verses 3 to 12, he describes a number. And this this definitely isn't a definitive list that James um, lists here because there's other passages in the Bible that talk at some of the the blessings that can come through trials, but he mentions five. He mentions perseverance, maturity, wisdom, humility, and life. And I don't have time to look at each of these in detail. Perhaps in your groups this week, you might have a chance to look at it more because there's so much gold in, in looking at those five different elements there. But for the sake of time, I'm going to group these into two main groups, two broad groups. The first ones that I want to look at together are maturity, wisdom and humility and these three are really closely connected with each other in 2 corinthians 12 paul has a interesting story that he tells about himself paul was a tremendous leader he you could argue that he was the most one of the most brilliant people who has ever lived when you look at his impact and his influence and uh in his writings incredible but he says that he had a thorn in the flesh 
And we don't know what it was, he doesn't say. It was something definitely bad that hindered him significantly. It could have been a physical ailment, but we really can't be sure. But he says, I had this terrible suffering in my life, and I prayed for God three times. I said to God, God, please, would you take this suffering away? But God said, no, because the grace that I want to get into your life, Paul, the grace I want to get in there can't get into your life any other way. He said, my strength in you, Paul, is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, the reason why God gave me this thorn in my flesh was so that I wouldn't become too elated. And the word elated there doesn't mean happy. It means that I wouldn't become too puffed up, too big-headed, is what he means. Paul is saying, do you know what? My intellect, my leadership abilities, which God used, unless he had done something in my life that made me really hurt, that really made me hurt, I would have become so elated and puffed up. I would have undone everything that he had done through me. That's what Paul is saying. The reality is that trials come along and they show you your own limitations. They show you your own flaws. They teach you humility and self-knowledge. And you have no idea how little you know. You have no idea how weak you are. You have no idea how much you need God until you face trials. And more than this, trials come along and they make you empathetic toward other people because if you don't suffer, it's hard to understand what other people are going through. And that is one part of what James is saying here and why he says we should consider it joy when we face trials because it brings maturity, it brings wisdom, it brings humility to our lives. It helps us to become more and more like Jesus. But he doesn't stop there in the passage. He also mentions that it brings perseverance that leads to life. And the reason he mentions this is because he knows the fact that trials The fact that trials can bring maturity and wisdom and humility and other blessings in our life is sometimes, that knowledge that is just sometimes not enough. Because there are times when the trials and suffering come in so bad um, that having a new perspective is, is not enough in that moment. The trials and suffering just so deep, they're so painful, it is just so dark for you in that moment. And that is why James also says we also need perseverance that leads to life. Verse 12 He says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And the word perseverance is is very important here. It just keeps turning up, verse 3, verse 4, verse 12. It's translated a few different ways. Depending on what version you've got there, it could be translated endurance or steadfastness or even patience in some translations but the greek word hypermeno literally translated means to hyper stand to stand your ground to stand fast let nothing move you that's literally what this word persevere means and sometimes on the journey of life things get so dark the grief is so great the pain so deep that no perspective shift is going to help in that moment but instead in those moments James says here's what you need to do you need to hyperstand you need to stand firm you need to hold on you need to stand your ground hold fast to the anchor in those moments 
And here's the key to why we need to do this and ultimately how we're to face trials as believers. Hebrews 12 says this. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured. There's that word, persevered. Hypermino, hyperstand, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And this, in fact, is the climax of the use of this word in all the scripture. Jesus endured. Jesus persevered. Jesus stood firm. He stood his ground on the cross. Why did he do that? He did it for you and for me. On the cross, all the weight of eternal justice for sin came down on him. All the punishment we deserve for everything we did came down on him. And it was coming down on him as he was hanging on that cross in the greatest act of love in the history of the world. And in that moment, he stayed. What an act of love. He persevered. He stood fast. He didn't budge. He could have called on all the angels of heaven to come in that moment. But he didn't. He stood firm. And as a result, God can forgive us and receive us. Isn't that good news? Aren't we blessed? Aren't you glad that Jesus persevered for you, that he endured for you, that he stood firm? I'm so glad that he did. And here's what James is saying to us. God is saying to us today. He says, when your life is getting dark, things are getting bad, I want you to stand fast, stand firm out of love. Not just by saying, well, I have to do this so I will grow or something like that. That won't work in certain moments and times. No, you want to stand fast saying, out of love for the one who stood fast for me, I will stand fast for him. And we do this in the knowledge that there is a crown of life coming. In other words, we know that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad your life is getting, stand fast because day will come again and it will. Morning will come. Because either the darkness will lift now in this life or eventually it's going to lift because Jesus is going to make the whole world right. This is his mission. This is what he is unfolding. Recently I received a text from a friend of mine who works in a hospital, he's a nurse, and he shared the following, which in so many ways sums up so well for us this truth this morning. And so I want to share it with you. He said these words. He said, I actually had the privilege of caring for a man this last week who is now with the Lord. And he told me of his story, that he was saved at a Billy Graham crusade in the 50s, I think. He was now in his 80s and so passionate for God, so dependent on him, so trusting of his care for him in this world and the next. It was so humbling and encouraging to see this and to be able to journey with him in the last few days of his life. He nearly died one night when I was there. We treated him and he recovered that time. But after that, he described to me the experience, the absolute peace he felt as he was moving toward heaven. He was actually disappointed that he was not allowed to carry on to be with Jesus. But he told me that he now knew that dying was not scary and that he would not have pain. And he actually died a day or two later. I'm not sure why I wanted to share this with you, mate, other than to say we serve a wonderful Saviour and a mighty God who cares for us from birth to death 
and beyond. And what a privilege it is to serve him and be his children. Praise God, isn't that powerful? What a testimony for us this morning. You know, I'm very aware that some of us here this morning, some watching online, we are in the midst, in that season of deep suffering. Well, today God wants to encourage you. He wants to remind you that he sees you, that he cares for you, that he loves you dearly, that his heart breaks at what you're enduring and going through at the moment. And today, God wants to pour his love into your heart by his Holy Spirit so that you would know his nearness in the midst of suffering and so that you are able to stand firm, to stand your ground, to hold on to Jesus, our Saviour. Because what to the world may seem impossible has been made possible in Christ. Amen. Will you join with me as we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's just so relevant, speaks so powerfully into the reality of the journey of this life. And Lord, we want to pray this morning. I want to pray for our world, in fact, Lord. There's so much pain, suffering, heartache, Lord. And we pray you continue to come, break in, Lord. Bring your peace, bring your love and your care, we pray. Lord, I want to pray particularly this morning for many who are here with us online or in the service here this morning who are in the midst of the deep journey of trials and suffering and heartache. Lord, I pray now by the Holy Spirit that you would minister your love to them in a very real and tangible way. Remind them, reveal to some for the first time how much you love them, that you're with them, that you see all that they're going through. And Lord, that you'd strengthen them today. You'd help them just to stand firm in you, to look to you. And Lord, I pray you'll help us as believers as we face trials along the journey of this life. Help us to respond as you would want us to respond. Help us to see things from your perspective. Help us to understand how you're using these things to shape us and to make us more like you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that through this you'll equip us, make us more like you and equip us to be able to reveal your great love to a hurting world. Use us, fill us, bless us. We pray today. And so, Lord, we just want to honour you and thank you, respond to you, Lord, in our hearts and in our lives now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we're going to sing a fantastic song that captures this truth. It's called Be Still, and it talks about just standing firm where we are, trusting God, looking to Him in the midst of the trials that we face in this journey. And we're going to sing this together as part of our response individually, corporately today as well. If you're in the midst of the trial and suffering, you're not, you're not meant to do that journey alone. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. If you're there this morning, I encourage us to come. We'd love to pray with you. You can do that. Come out during the song. The pastors will be here and some of the prayer team or at the end of the service, come forward. We'd love just to pray for you, to encourage you this morning. But why don't we stand together? Let's sing these great words of truth. Declare them with our hearts this morning together. Let's do that.
you silence all my fears I won't be afraid you don't let go be still my heart and know I won't be afraid be still and try Close, uh, just prompted by the Holy Spirit to pronounce a doxology over us all. In fact, this morning, a blessing over each and every one of us. His goodness, His kindness, He longs to pour out upon us. Now, unto Him that is able to keep you from falling 
to present your faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Lord, I, I proclaim this blessing, Lord, I do, in your name this morning, over each and every one. You who are able to keep us from falling. Blessing, Lord, I pray. May we capture afresh your goodness, your mercy, your kindness pursuing us. Oh, Lord, strengthen those who need strengthening this morning. Be near, so near by your Holy Spirit's presence. I, I sense that this morning, Lord. Minister your love in a way that only you can, great God. Come so near. And, Lord, now fill us by your Spirit that we might take this love in our own brokenness will take this love to a hurting world we pray the hope the eternal hope is in you Jesus you who are going to make everything right praise God we look to you we worship you we pray these things in Jesus mighty and powerful name everyone said amen amen please be seated if you'd like prayer our prayer team will be down the front they'd love just to pray for you this morning to encourage you do stay for a tea and coffee as well and be blessed this week as you meet in your groups and you share it together and encourage one another. God bless. Look forward to seeing you soon.